Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. If you've spent any time studying financial markets, you've read or heard warnings that the four most dangerous words in investing are, this time is different. Well, today's guest is undaunted. He believes this time really is different. Sean Stannard Stockton is President and Chief Investment Officer of Ensemble Capital Management and a CFA Charter Holder. Our conversation spans why he believes this time is different and why conviction in an idea is one of the most underappreciated elements of a successful investment process and yet also one of the most critical, especially in times like these. Sean also shares his views on current market and economic conditions and some of the changes we may see as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Sean Stannis Stockton, welcome for Take 15 podcast. Thanks so much, Lauren. It's good to see you again. Yeah, so I'm especially excited to have you on the show today because we go back, I was thinking it must be like more than a decade um, it yeah. was a different life for me. I was at the Financial Times. You were still at Ensemble, but you were doing a lot of work around your blog, Tactical Philanthropy. So I wonder if you could just give us a quick catch up at the last decade. Uh, things have changed for you in terms of your work, and it might just be interesting for the audience to understand sort of what you were doing back then and what you're doing now. Sure. So let's see. Ensemble Capital is a wealth management and investment advisory firm. We manage about a billion dollars on behalf of almost 200 clients, a lot of private clients, you know, families, um, as well as a lot of charitable institutions. Um, and then more and more as we've grown more institutional clients as well. And, um, and so early on in the history of the firm, um, I led a focus in serving philanthropic clients. And so today about a quarter of our Assets under management are in private foundations, nonprofit endowments, and donor-advised funds. And, and so the Tactical Philanthropy blog that you had mentioned was um, a place where I wrote a lot about more the giving side of philanthropy, not, not investment management, but understanding how do you deploy philanthropic capital um, for impacts, right? So for, for positive social returns, um, which I contended on the blog has a lot to do with, with investing. A lot of investment ideas translate to philanthropic investment. Although certainly not 100%. There's plenty of investors who kind of think like, well, philanthropy should just be exactly like capital markets. And I think that's wrong. But there's a lot of, a lot of overlap. And so I, I stopped writing that blog in 2012. And today, me and the analyst team here writes the Intrinsic Investing blog, which is not about philanthropy at all. It's just about our investment strategy. Great. So let's start our conversation with uh, the foremost dangerous words uh, in investing. I know you've been thinking about this. Uh, this time is different. Um, back in March, I heard a conversation that you were part of where you thought this time really was different or is different. Um, do you still feel that way? Uh, we do. We do. So, you know, I'm um, one of those investors who's, who has long claimed that, you know, this time is different are indeed the four most dangerous words. And, and I think that I'm... Um, one of the key things is that when people talk about this time is different, what they often imply is that kind of the principles need to change, right? So like in the dot-com era, people started truly believing that like cash flow doesn't matter, eyeballs matter, right? That was like this idea, the number of eyeballs that you have, that's what drove stock prices. And that was a belief in first principles falling away and being replaced with something else, which we now know in respect was wrong, right? Um, on in our March uh, conference call, when I talked about this time, it is indeed different. 
what I was getting at was that most of the crises that affect financial markets have some sort of um, historical comparable time periods. And, and while uh, in Mark Twain's words, history doesn't repeat, it does rhyme quite regularly. And so you can look at kind of the past time periods when, um, when there was a recession and understand, well, how do businesses operate in a recession? Um, but one of the examples I gave on that call was, was Starbucks, was an investment in our portfolio, and how in the financial crisis, the worst recession in 100 years, same store sales declined 3% and then 6%. And that was like a really bad outcome. But this time, the Starbucks were legally banned from operating. That is an entirely different sort of scenario, right? You can't look back at past times when that happened or think about airlines. So the airline industry since inception has never gone through a period in which planes were just grounded and told you cannot fly, right? And so that's what we meant by this time is different. And yet the first principles, which is that you know, stocks are worth the cash flow they're going to generate over the long term is completely so you also talked a lot about sort of first principles. And I think one of the principles you talk about, well, I've certainly seen you write about, is that investors should not abandon, uh, I guess, deep conviction in their long-term ability. And I'd love to talk a bit more about uh, conviction. So you also mentioned you know, Tactical Th uh, Philanthropy blog. And one of the things I read that you said was a lesson from writing that is that there's nothing like regularly pu publishing your ideas to I guess, refine and enhance your thinking. Um, but also, um, it taught you that conviction in an idea is one of the most underrated or, I guess, underappreciated elements of investing. Um, and it comes from getting a full, I guess, understanding of a concept. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, why do you think conviction is underappreciated uh, in the investment process? And then looking at today's environment, um, I think I know the answer. That why is it so crucial that conviction is part of the process? Sure. So you think about like your average Wall Street report and there's a stock trading at 80 and they say, well, it's really worth 100, right? The price target's 100. But they rarely tell you how confident they are that it's actually 100 and not 80 or 120, right? And there's no perfect precision in valuing stocks, right? You can never be completely precise. But there are certainly companies that have a much narrower range of value versus others that have a very wide range of value. And I don't just mean over the short term, like their beta or how volatile the stock is, but I mean over like a decade plus sort of time frame, there are businesses and the characteristics that we look for in, in having the conviction in their ability to create value over the long term is that they have a set of competitive advantages, something that prevents them from their profits being stolen by competitors, um, that, that, that those competitive advantages protect some product or service that will remain relevant over the very long term. So some businesses like Kodak was a business that went bankrupt despite the fact that nobody ever really um, undermined their analog film patent portfolio. It's just that it became irrelevant in a world of digital, right? Um, and then we look for management teams that really understand how to drive value for customers for shareholders, and then for the rest of their stakeholders as well. We think that's something that many investors underappreciate, that if you have, uh, say, an employee base that are raving fans of the company, there is a lot of value that will accrue to shareholders over the long term from that, right? So using like Costco and Walmart's a good example. We owned Costco many years ago in a, you know, like a early 2000s. And I remember at the time, 
Wall Street reports kept saying, well, they should just, you know, pay their employees less because they're, they're too generous and they should be more like Walmart and they should cut some of these benefits. Of course, Costco stock has just done dramatically better than, than Walmart's. And it turns out that paying your employees well and treating them well creates a very devoted employee base, which improves customer experience. So like in our own portfolio, we own Home Depot. And one of the phrases they live by is that they take care of their employees so that their employees will take care of their customers and everything else will take care of itself. That's like their mantra, right? And so recognizing that is a really key part. And then the last part is, is how forecastable the business is and our own ability to understand it. So there are, if you ask like an energy uh, company, like a oil and gas CEO, what the price of oil will be in a decade, if they're honest, they'll be like, we have no idea, right? <laughs> if instead you ask like a consumer packaged good company, um, you know, this, uh, you know, some, some, like a staple sort of food product, they can forecast within a percent or two the price of their product over the longer term. So some businesses are intrinsically more forecastable than others. And then the last piece is our own team's ability to understand it. So years ago, we looked at Qualcomm. We understood their patent portfolio was super valuable. We understood that their components needed to go into all these smartphones. But we just came to the conclusion that there were other hedge funds out there with like patent portfolio lawyers on staff who were always going to understand that portfolio better than we could. And that at some point, they'd be called into question. And we wouldn't have the conviction when the stock was dropping and people were bringing up questions about the patent portfolio to stick with it. And that is the direct answer to your question, which is that the most critical time in owning a stock and making decisions is when it's coming under pressure. Um, and, and you have to come to the conclusion that that pressure is misplaced. In order to do that, it, it can't just be theory. Like You truly have to believe it. And, and that's why we put conviction first in our process. Okay. So you just used the word intrinsic a little while ago, and I'm curious, your blog is called Intrinsic Investing. Just explain to me why you named it Intrinsic Investing. Sure. So, you know, at heart, we're value investors. We only buy securities because we think they're trading for less than they're worth. But our mutual fund, for instance, gets categorized as a growth uh, fund because most of the businesses that we invest in are very high quality businesses that produce enormous amounts of cash flow and generate very high returns on invested capital. And so they trade at higher than market multiples for good reasons, not because they're expensive, but because they're worth a lot more than the average stock and, and their valuations reflect that. Um, so by talking about intrinsic investing, we're talking about the intrinsic value of a, of a company, right? And the stock that, the, that, that represents that company. Our, our assessment of that value, we don't buy stocks with the idea that, hey, in three years, some other investor will pay us more and we can flip it to them then. So we never say, well, this other company might buy this stock at this price, so let's buy it. We're only ever looking at what's the intrinsic value of this company and its cash flows and then paying less than that when we acquire the shares. Okay, great. I'd love to talk a bit more about stress testing your portfolio. Um, I was, I think, either reading or listening to something where you were talking about going into the pandemic, uh, stress testing for like a severe recession, but then realizing you had a stress test for a pandemic, which is kind of a totally different scenario. Can you just walk through that process a little bit about um, what, how you went through that stress testing process and what you learned and which companies or, or a company that might have not passed that test and why? Sure. So in early March, we kind of came to the conclusion that um, the pandemic was very real. It was going to be a huge problem, but we didn't have very good a reference point for just how bad it could kind of get, you know. And so what we did is we went through our portfolio and we simply assumed declines in revenue um, such that the, the, the cash flow would become an issue, right, that it would go negative um, and that you'd have some sort of potential 
problem getting to the long term, right? Because we all know the economy is going to come back over time. It will. But you have to get to the long term in order to earn long term returns. So we went through our portfolio. And, and as you alluded to, part of our initial analysis of any company is, is doing a stress test. And we assume we buy a stock, even though we don't typically hold it forever. Um, we plan to. Like when we make an investment, we're not planning on flipping it to another investor in the short term. And so we assume we're going to own it through a pretty severe recession at some point. And so if the company's not going to make it through that, we won't own the stock. Even if we think that the economy is going to be robust for a number of years, we just think that there's too high of a probability, like we saw this year, where something comes out of the blue. And so if a company can't make it through a severe recession, we won't own it at any price, even if it's super cheap. So in early March, even though we'd done that in our portfolios, we went through another, a brand new stress test and we just said, okay, let's just drive you know, cash flow to zero and then look at the assumptions that would cause that. And then can we underwrite the security based on those assumptions, right? And so in going through our portfolio, um, for we run a focused portfolio, kind of 20 to 25 stocks. And so all of the companies passed that test, save for one. And that was a part supplier to automakers. They are very well competitively positioned. Their products are super important and they're low cost. However, auto production was coming to a halt globally. And this is a very small player in a, in a world of very big OEMs. And we just got concerned that we said, hey, you know, the OEMs can really put the pressure on the parts makers. There just might not even be cars made for four or five months. And so even though we believe that it was likely to make it through, it didn't reach the very high threshold we have. And so we exited that position and, and redeployed it. Now, of course, redeploying in March, there was lots of good opportunities you could buy um, you know, there. So we were able to, to pick up a, a great replacement for that company. Okay, great. So early, you did talk a bit about conviction and your investment sort of uh, framework. And I'd love to just go a little bit more deeply into that because you've done a lot of work, especially on the blog, you have the great uh, sort of a, a diagram, you've written a lot about this. Just walk us through your investment philosophy framework. And I'm especially interested in some of the traps that you identify as part of that process. Yeah. So the most fundamental thing we're looking for is competitively advantaged businesses. And kind of the, the difficult thing for us is you can't just screen for those. I can't just pull up a, a list off Bloomberg of competitively advantaged businesses, which makes our job challenging, but it also protects our job. So if we were using kind of more of a quantitative analysis approach, I would say, well, the algorithms are going to eat our lunch. Right. And, and yet to this day, there's a, it's very challenging for you know, any sort of quantitative methodology to identify competitively advantaged businesses. They may be able to identify businesses that were competitively advantaged in the past, but not those that will remain completely advantaged over the future. Um, and then there's like very nuanced sorts of things. So an example in our portfolio is First Republic Bank. So as a rule, we're not so interested in the banking sector. I mean, these are just these, you know, gigantic entities that they're maybe too big to fail, which gives you some level of safety, but the returns on equity that they earn are not great. And we think, in fact, they'll likely be kind of capped in some way um, through regulatory processes. Um, and you've already seen that through, through them not being able to use as much leverage over the last decade as they were previously allowed to. But First Republic Bank, while it is a bank and looks and feels like a bank, they only serve high net worth customers. And they really, almost all of their customers, about 50% of them are in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the balance are kind of LA, New York, Boston, and a couple of small areas. So they're not trying to compete for everybody. They're only competing for these very high-end customers. And then they provide 
outstanding customer service. And, and I don't use that lightly. Like everyone says, oh, we do great customer service. But if you look at things like net promoter scores or Gallup polls, the banking industry is one of the most disliked industries in American commerce. Consumers don't like their bank. In fact, the majority of bank employees don't bank at the bank that they work at because they don't think it's a very good bank. So you have this industry that is disliked by customers. And then you have First Republic, whose net promoter scores, which is a widely used metric for evaluating customer satisfaction. It scores on high with like the Ritz-Carlton, Nordstrom's, Apple, Amazon. And so what they've figured out is that for people who have a fair bit of that worth, uh, financial worth, saving them time and energy is super valuable. And those customers will accept lower yields on their deposits or even pay a little bit higher interest on their, on their mortgages um, in exchange for this customer service. And so, um, and I can attest to that because after doing the research, we said, well, this is so great. I should move my own personal banking there and the firm's banking. And, and we've you know, now witnessed them for over almost a decade now providing levels of service that you know, the big banks, there's nothing that uh, from a logical standpoint, prevents banks from offering good customer service, but we are confident that's never going to happen simply because of the industry structure and, and where the incentives are. Interesting. Can you just go into the, the traps that I've read about? So you've got a commoditization oh, right. trap, yeah. stewardship trap, and the complexity trap. I think those are pretty interesting. Sure, sure. So basically, um, in the diagram that, that we put out that you're making reference to, we've talked about the competitive advantages, the, the moat, um, management, and then understandability, right? Both our own teams understand the ability to understand it as well as the, the nature of the industry. And, and then we, you know, these are a Venn diagram and they're overlapping. And then there are these traps, these gaps in which two of the components exist, but the third one doesn't. So for instance, the commoditization trap is when you have a great management team and a totally understandable forecastable business, but there's no real competitive advantages. They might do well. Businesses without competitive advantages can have long runs of good luck and good execution and, and be very profitable. Um, but it, has, it is a trap because over time it will likely become commoditized and their returns on their on the financial performance is likely to kind of um, revert to the mean. Um, then you have what we call a stewardship trap. So very competitively advantaged business, understandable, but the management team doesn't understand some component of what they need to be doing, right? They're not driving value for customers or for shareholders or stakeholders. Um, and then the complexity trap, right? Which is you have this, that, that's a little bit like uh, the Qualcomm example I gave earlier, right? So you had this competitively managed business, solid management team, but our own ability to understand the core of the competitive advantages was such that we said, Let, let's pass. It's too complex just for our team. Other people could do great on this stock, but it's not for us. Yeah. So you just held your quarterly uh, update on, I guess, current market and economic conditions. Can you give us just a snapshot on how you and the firm are thinking about the economic outlook uh, looking forward? <laughs> well, we're trying our best. I mean, it's definitely the most challenging, you know, near-term outlook um, economically. And at the end of the day, what we care about is the outlook for the 2025 securities that we that we own. We don't spend that much time doing macro analysis, but we certainly spend a lot of time trying to understand the macroeconomic context in which our companies are are operating. And what's unique about this situation is that the the economy is being so driven by biology, right, by a virus that you can't just look at like, well, the last time the GDP contracted 15%, which actually never happened before, you know, it bounced back for some time period. You, 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 all those reference points are gone, right? And so I think, you know, to, to kind of summarize all of it, um, we think that the economy will continue to recover. 
it, it, its initial rebound in in um, in May and June, say by looking at like the jobs number, the 60-day period in May and June was the fastest rate of hiring in the history of the United States by a humongous margin. Of course, all that was was adding back the unbelievable large drop in in, in um, hiring in April. Um, and so we think that the economy is is on the healing path. Um, I hesitate to say this because it, it sounds so crazy, but we think that the coronavirus cr- uh, recession is, is almost certainly already over, right? That uh, economic expansion begins when the contraction starts and the expansion begins. And there's no doubt about it, the economy is expanding since April, right? Um, but I, the, the, the very important question is, will it continue to expand or will it go back into contraction? And so what would cause it to go back into contraction? you know, the virus getting really out of control. And so I think a lot of people very reasonably look at the case counts and all these things that are going up right now and think, oh my gosh, how could the market still be going up? But keep in mind, the market has already seen New York, New Jersey crush their own curve. Um, Yesterday, New York announced that there were zero new deaths. Um, In that day was the first time they hadn't had any deaths there. And so, um, you know, you can look through most of the middle and northern parts of the United States and there is, the, the pandemic is really pretty under control. But the states along the southern border, for a variety of different reasons, are still struggling very significantly. And so we think that the economic recovery will will really take quite some time. I mean, we, you know, when people start talking about V-shaped or W-shaped recoveries, all those sorts of things, um, you know, the the decline in the economy played out over like two months. It's probably like a two-year sort of recovery um, to get back to where we were. Um, and I think one of the really key things that has played out is this um the monetary stimulus, but even more important, the Congress's fiscal stimulus, which was you know, unprecedented by a large degree. And um, and so one of the big challenges coming up in the near term is these un- enhanced unemployment benefits expire in just two weeks, right? And uh, we do expect that Congress will come and, and reauthorize them or, or have some other version that's similar to that. But certainly the economy is currently dependent on, on government support, which the government should do because it's, it's, it's what's going to lead to the healthiest economy over the long term. So we know that when we emerge from this pandemic, it'll be to a totally different landscape. There's no sort of going back to the, the old normal. There'll be a, a new normal or the next normal. And I'm wondering what you think some of the biggest societal changes will be as a result of this or trends that you are looking at, especially as an investor. So... The way we've generally framed it is that um, we don't think there are going to be too many trend reversals. In other words, trends that were playing out where people were having a longer term preference to something are unlikely to stop and turn around the other direction. So, for instance, travel. So a lot of people are worried, well, travel is never going to come back. And there might be some truth to that when it comes to business travel, right, that everyone is, is you know, uh, learning that Zoom works really quite well. And, and so there might truly be less need for business travel. But people go on vacation because they want to go places. They don't want to go experience it virtually, right? And and so pretty much every time there's been some bad recession or say 9-11, people have said, oh, well, people aren't going to want to travel anymore. But travel is part of the human DNA. I mean, quite literally, right? It's like America in particular is this nation of immigrants where we're all come from people who got up, pulled up stake and went someplace new, right? And so we have every um, confidence that travel is going to come back over time. Um, and so that would be an example of a trend that we would not that we would fade any sort of idea it might reverse and we expect it's going to continue. But one of those nuances is is business travel. Right. And so there are travel like we own booking on um, the, the big online travel agent. Most of their business is all leisure travel. Um, but if say we were going to buy like a Hyatt or a Hilton or something like that, we would want to really understand 
you know, their business, I'm um, from, from business travel and conferences and, and where does all that come from? And yet at the end of the day, humans are social animals and, and there is a real need when you're signing a big business deal or you're trying to meet prospective new clients to sit down face to face with people, to share meals with them. You can't do that over Zoom, right? The humans create relationships through, through meals. And, and so we think a lot of those things will, will continue. So um, we had published a post that explored a wide range of different trend shifts. Um, and I could get into some of those if you like, but I think the broader theme was that for the most part, things are going to kind of go back to normal. Um, and yet the most important thing to recognize is that some trends are going to jump forward dramatically um, and recognizing that shift um, is really critical for investors. Yeah. So, you know, like you say, most things will go back to normal, but I'm curious, what are one or two things that really won't go back to normal? Well, I think, you know, I talked about with business travel, but just yes. even more generally, I think that um, if you look at what happened with, with Zoom um, during shelter in place, it wasn't just people using it as a utility to say, hey, I need to talk to somebody, let's use Zoom. People were having cocktail parties on Zoom, right? Um, you know, kids are having play dates on Zoom, right? And um, in my life, my, I have two teenagers. And so we had a whole bunch of different school events that were on Zoom. And it made me realize I don't ever want to have to drive 20 minutes to school, park, go sit in an auditorium for an hour, listen to some presentation about something that I need the information for. But why do I want to spend two hours doing this when instead they could broadcast it via Zoom? My family could eat dinner together, put up the iPad in the table and listen to all the stuff that they were going to say while we eat dinner, which we're going to do anyway. Right. And so I think there's a wide range of in-person interactions that will be permanently replaced by more virtual interactions and not just for utility purposes. But this is this key point about trend acceleration. It, it won't be because it's an inferior solution, but, oh, we're all worried about the pandemic because I don't know when it's going to be, whether it's three years or five years or seven years from now but we are not going to be continually worried about pandemics. I mean, that, you know, people, every earthquake, I live in San Francisco, the day after the earthquake, everyone worries about earthquakes, right? Uh, sales of earthquake insurance skyrocket. But after an earthquake is when there's a low likelihood of additional earthquakes after you get through the kind of initial period of aftershocks and everything. Um, so we do think these virtual experiences will be a, a very big deal. And that has some interesting ramifications. So for instance, like number of miles driven, could decline pretty substantially, right? And so it's not just, oh, let's go invest in video conferencing technology. What are all the other implications? Like, uh, I've barely driven since shelter in place began. It's unbelievable, you know? But that doesn't just mean I, I put less miles in the car or burned less gas. I also probably bought fewer snack foods at gas stations, which most Americans do on a regular basis. You know, there's a lot of other auto-related economic activity that may dissipate. One of those things I read about, and I think you also spoke about this at one point, was uh, podcast, podcast downloads being down as a result of people not commuting as much, not listening to stuff in their cars. So that's kind of an interesting trend as well. So I'd love to end these uh, conversations, what I call the ray of sunshine question. You've, you've sort of touched on this already, but I'd love to know uh, from you, like personally, what has been the most, I guess, positive outcome of the last few months and looking forward, what you feel most optimistic about emerging from this uh, pandemic? So for myself in a business context, the most you know, promising thing is that every single one of our clients stayed with us through the decline and rebound, and we brought on a number of new clients. And I think that this idea about conviction, which drives how we make investments, it also speaks to how we try and engage with our clients, that we don't want clients to feel like, well, these are these smart people and they know what they're doing because when when 
stocks are going up and to the right, everybody's kind of happy, right? But it's in times like March that not only is our conviction tested, but our client's conviction is is tested, you know? And, and so we spent a lot of time through the blog and you know, interviews like this one. So sorry about these, this earpod thing. Um, I don't know what I'm gonna do about this. So um, uh, we spent a lot of time with our clients, helping them understand our actual strategy. And the reason is, is for conviction. And it's not just a self-interested thing. Of course, we want to keep our clients, but we know that the reason that uh, investors tend to underperform the very investment vehicles they invest in is because they lose conviction in the investment vehicle at exactly the wrong time. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, people who did not, you know, panic um, in, in March have transformed their their financial lives, right? If you panicked in, in March and you sold everything, you missed a 40% rebound, you have permanently and structurally reduced your standard of living for the rest of your life, right? And so I think that, that was something I was really proud of is that we kept people invested. That's, that's a challenging thing to do, you know? Um, and, uh, and then as far as just like options about the future, I think that one of the things that, that um, financial markets have wrestled with the last decade is that growth was low and it was, it was too low to drive the standard of living increase and wage increases that Americans were used to for a very long period of time. And I think that one of the things that this event is, is going to trigger is a recognition that um, as a country, we need to really strive to maximize full employment to the largest extent possible. And that wage increases are a function of, that drives the economy. You don't just want to cap wages, you know, uh, consumer spending is 70% of the economy. And I think that the Fed in particular, and this began before the pandemic, they recognized that we weren't, we, they really had further to go on employment. They were only just beginning to have lower income workers generate pay increases in 2017 and 2018. And I think that we probably now have conditions over the next five to 10 years where both the monetary and fiscal authorities will be very focused on how do we get all these economic resources fully utilized, especially labor, and how do we get them you know, generating standard of living increases? Um, these unemployment benefits I talked about are, have been enormously important. And if in retrospect, say a year from now, we look back and we say, you know what? That unprecedented spending really reduced the human damage, the human pain and suffering of, of the economic crisis, then we're gonna keep using it again in future future events like this. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that um, as a society, we may better structure our economy um, for the benefit of, of everyday Americans. Great. Sean, it's been really great catching up with you after a decade plus. Thank you so much for your time today and be sure to stay safe out there. Thanks very much, Lauren. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Take care. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.